Aloha, this is Dr. Tiki, and my prescription for you is to listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give you witchcraft. You think me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome to yet another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast to guarantee it's a waste of electrons and you get to hear stuff. This week it's episode 481 and it's another pandemic countdown day here. So listen, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, well, lots of other people got a shot. Uh, I didn't get one, but lots of other people did, and I don't have to. Roll up your sleeve, get a goddamn shot. Don't be the idiot who didn't. Get the goddamn shot already. Just just do it because, unlike Commander Cam, you don't want to end up in one of these hermetically sealed boxes here in Area 51. They're not sanitary, number one, as he is finding out. The smell is horrific over time. And frankly, you know, it's not as clean or as much fun as a gerbil cage, as Commander Cam is finding out. So it's another quarantine day here in Area 51, and it's it's fantasy night here. And we're going to be finding out some fantasy stuff uh, with our author. We're in social distancing show mode, and uh, the world is caught up in Zoom. We're back down to a paired staff again of two, me and the commander. Commander, Cam, how you doing tonight? Uh, pretty good. You know, just eating on my little gerbil pellet here and then going up, getting a little exercise in the wheel, you know, yeah, I that kind jumped, of stuff. I jumped a whole bunch of, of, of uh, God, what was that that came in today? Oh, I found five old, old cases of Fruity Pebbles. I <laughs> No, no, just uh, just uh, looking at the uh, stale fruity pebbles and deciding if I want to try to eat them or not. Oh, okay, okay. But, so what, you know, what I mean, else is going on? Well, I mean, then second of all, you know, you know, I, I can see over there you got some Bombay gin. You know, this big water bottle I with do. the thing on the end. You know, I it do. could be a Bombay gin bottle. I'm just saying, you know. All you, right. You, well, it could be. It could not be. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, fine. <laughs> we're we're getting inching ever ever closer. We're less than twenty episodes away from episode five hundred. So I'm once again uh, duty bound to ask you, what are you getting me for episode five hundred? I'm duty bound to tell you that I can't tell you. I mean, seriously. I mean, Zombrarian and uh, Kriana have both. You know, told me, you know, that I am not allowed to speak a word about, you know, special <sighs> guests and uh, gold-plated this and, uh, uh, you know, champagne-filled that. And, you know, I, I just can't tell you these things. 
Well, a gold-plated something is better than nothing. Yep, most definitely. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's been an interesting week. Shall I tell you why it's been an interesting week? Sure. Um, you notice how for the past couple of months, I've been starting off every show once we get past the civil inanities here of this stuff by saying, Somebody threw me a book last week. So I'm going to start it that way again. Somebody threw me a book last week. And the book was called Way of the Argosy. And I think that's the way it's pronounced. I'm not sure if it's pronounced that way or not, because I think the word Argosy is a made up word. But I'm going to find out because we're going to ask the author. And the author's name is Sebastian de Castell. Sebastian, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thanks for having me. Okay, first question. Is Argosy a made-up word? Well, so Argosy, uh, so I pronounce it as Argosy, but but um, as it's a fantasy novel, one of the privileges you get as a reader, a special bonus you get whenever you buy a fantasy novel is you can pronounce it any way you want. <laughs> That's only with fantasy novels. You don't get that if you buy your mystery novels, your Western novels. There you have to find out the proper pronunciations. But uh, Argosy, Argosy is all good. The word uh, Argos and Argosy, of course, you know, do have a history in in our world. Right. Um, right. But uh, they are, but they, but are, but they're used uh, differently inside of uh, inside of the world in which uh, the book Way of the Argosy takes place. So that's it. It is in effect both made up and not made up. It's uh, it's like Schrodinger's, you know, dictionary. Until you open up the book, you don't know whether it exists or not. Gotcha. Exactly. <laughs> so let's start off with some basics. Um, before we get into your books, uh, sure. which, by the way, are really interesting and <clears throat> have some very interesting twists and turns about them and where they, how they come about and, and how you put them together and all that. First of all, Sebastian de Castell is your actual real name. It is, in fact, my actual real name. And, and you make a point. The second most common that. question I get asked, by the way, the first most common question. No, it's not, we're not going to get into the first common question because I got a whole line that goes with that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice it to say, the second one is uh, is your name, Sebastian de Castell, and it and it, it really is. And I hated that name as a child, by the way, Sebastian. Oh, sure, I get yeah. that. That had to be that had to be one of the most obstructive names in in <clears throat> elementary and middle school that there was. Come on. So once you got past that, did it ever become a really cool name? You know, when I became a fantasy author, that's when it seemed to become a, a cool name. I, I remember um, when when my first book deal was happening and my book was about to come out and, and one of my publishers, I think it might have been Penguin, somebody said, um, oh, you know, your name, it's just, it's such a perfect name. It's so marketable. Like it gives us such an edge and, and I, you know, for a fantasy author. And I, I said, well, wait a minute, like half your authors use pen names. If it's, you know, if, if, if having a great sounding name is so good, how come you keep putting out, you know, fantasy novels with names that sound completely dull and, and boring? You could just make up really cool, you know, 
Antonio, you know, Antonio Swordfighter or something. <laughs> that was going to be my name, by the way, but they didn't let me go with Antonio Swordfighter. I get that. I get They said that. it was too long. It didn't fit on the cover. But I love the picture of you in the kind of traditional Antonio Banderas uh, sword fighting costume on your website. And I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, that took no thought whatsoever. You just said, if I was actually Sebastian Di Castillo, how would I look? And there it was. Did you actually take uh, sword fighting lessons in the whole deal? Yeah, I used to fence um, years and years ago. Uh, and then I got into, uh, so I was mostly an epee fencer because that's really the only kind of real fencing. Um, <laughs> you know. Okay. Foil, foil, foil is is a little too friendly, and and saber is just what my old fencing master used to call fly fishing, because you just kind of <laughs> whip the blade around, and it's whereas you know epee, you know you get punched with an epee and you start to feel it. Um, but uh, uh, from there, I, I did some uh, what's called theatrical fencing, which is you know choreographed fencing, and then I I got into um, I was asked to choreograph. Uh, some fight scenes for a theater production. And then uh, that just kind of led me into um, doing sword choreography for a while. So I was a fight director for a while for the theater and uh, which is, you know, one of the most fun experiences you can possibly Absolutely. hope to have. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I love doing that and that kind of became my thing. And then um, when it was time to publish my book, I, I, I was both too lazy and, uh, and um, to you know, too ashamed of 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 my uh, of my more recent uh, bouts of getting tubbier. Um, <laughs> so I just grabbed the most recent photo I had, which which uh, in which I looked much better, and um, and sent them that. And then they keep using that same photo, which is getting which is going to just gradually be a bigger and bigger problem over the years as I. Why start would to look you not use that picture? That. That's the best. Come on, that is it, like the best. You know what's really odd about it? So I always have this thing where, you know, like the rule of thumb is you can't use a photo where people wouldn't recognize you if they see you in person uh, as, as being the person in that photo. And, and unless you're doing it intentionally. And I thought, you know, OK, well, you know, I still look enough you know, like that. It's not like people don't recognize me or, or say, oh, I thought, you know, are you the author's uncle come to hold their chair for them? Um <laughs> <laughs> but but I've always had this thing where I'm like, oh, you know, I was I was better looking at and, and then but when I saw one of the German editions of one of my books, the, the Germans had not only taken that photo and done like this huge inside cover of just that photo, but they had airbrushed it, too. So I looked even more sort of ridiculous, like they, they gave me a fake tan in airbrush. <laughs> Between the name and the fencing, was it like kind of preordained that you were going to be an author of fantasy novels? I don't think so, in the sense that I was never, uh, you know, I was never one of those, you know, kids who wrote, you know, when they were when they were little. I didn't write as a teenager. I didn't really write in, in college. Um, there was a part of me that always wanted to tell fantasy stories since I was, since I was younger, but, um, but I'd never really done anything about it until, I mean, you know, I was, I was 27. I was making my living playing in a, in a rock, in a rock and roll band that was, you know, touring small towns and playing brown eyed girl three times a night. And, um, 
and I again, was getting nothing sued. wrong with that. My <laughs> no. God, no, it's a fun, you know, look, it can be a fun job. Um, you know, but I was, but I was making, you know, I was making like 300 bucks a week and, uh, which was not super easy to live on. And, um, and I was getting sued by the bass player, um, <laughs> who, for, for control of the band. Um, so I was getting th- these letters from his lawyer, uh, demanding full control of the band, which the bass player had a lawyer. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. You know, anybody with a, with a, uh, the funny thing is he and I are, are still our good friends again. Uh, we, we weren't friends for a little while there during the, during that. Um, I did find out by the way, the best tactic in the world. I, I'm going to, this is, uh, you know, usually you listen to a podcast about authors. You're not going to learn anything too important, but here's, here's a little tool that's really helpful. Um, when you get a lawyer's letter from, 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 a, from, from your friend or your bass player or, or anybody else from an expensive, uh, lawyer, um, write them back and ask lots of questions. Uh, and you, you write them back and they'll, and they'll reply. Their first reply will be like, it's not our job to blah, blah, blah. And so what you have to write in your letter is I'm really trying very hard, sir, to make sure that we can sort this out without having to rely on the courts. And so I could I can do that better if you could respond to these 42 questions, because that letter, them them refusing to respond to your letters doesn't look good in court. So that was that was my strategy. So then eventually I got a phone call. And, and as I say, he's a really good guy. And, um, you know, but but he called me up and said, stop writing to my lawyers. It's they're, they're saying they're going to start charging me. And so. <laughs> yeah. I knew that was where that was going. <laughs> exactly. So, so there's a little tactic. Anyway, sorry that was uh, that was a bit of a a, a a detour from the fact that oh, that's I, great. You know, <laughs> I was I was 27 years old. I was earning barely. I was earning 300 bucks a week in a failing rock band and getting sued for and you know and getting lawsuit threats. Um, and so I I just needed something creative that was sort of in my control and uh, and I did what I you know I did what I always do when when life feels like you're just completely lost um, I went to the library because libraries are like libraries for me are like cathedrals you know like they're, they're they're you can go and find almost anything like you can be as lost as you want to be and you'll find something in a library and I found what I found was was this cardboard box like this this nicely made cardboard box of cassette tapes on the sixth floor of the Vancouver Public Library called Let's Write a Mystery by Ralph McInerney and Ralph McInerney was a was a was a mystery author. He wrote the Father Dowling mysteries and the he wrote, he wrote like these religious mysteries, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he put together this this kind of course on a series of cassette tapes. Um, it was 24 sides, and you'd he'd stick the tape in the cassette player, and and he'd he'd talk to you like a 1960s science professor in your ear, and he'd just be like, "Today we're going to write our protagonist." He should be a guy you'd like to have a beer with. Um, and I'm misquoting poor Ralph, of course, uh, but um, but he 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 just walked you through this this process of writing a novel for the first time. And inside the box with the cassette tapes was the rough draft of the novel that he writes as he's recording these tapes. And um, and that was the worst novel I'd ever read in my life. Um, and. And it sounds like I'm dissing his writing, but of course this is a you know this is an award-winning novelist and, and theologian. This guy knew a lot of a lot of stuff, um, but the fact that he was willing to 
to expose his own very rough draft, you know, to show you something that wasn't polished, that didn't make him look good at all. It, it made him look bad. The story was terrible. It didn't make any sense. The, it was all kinds of loose threads. But it, it kind of unlocked that for me. It told me, you know, he, he kind of he just gave me permission to just write a, a story, to write a novel. And and so I did. And then that was just kind of like a life-changing experience for me because, and that's why I always tell everybody should write a novel because once you have that, it's like this creative outlet that that can be completely in your control. You don't have to apologize for it. You can show it to people if you want, but you don't have to. And I just, I found it so mind expanding that, um, you know, long before I was published, writing my first novel changed my life. So from that point, writing that first novel and it that first novel is always a very kind of solitary singular experience where you're just trying to find yourself in it when did it become when did it get to the point for you where you took it to somebody else and went hey look what i did what do you think um well i'm arrogant so i showed my wife right away (laughs) um and it and she wasn't she wasn't really contemplating divorce, so she said it wasn't bad. Um, uh, but but I, I I you know I showed it to a couple of people, and you know the great thing about writing your, your first novel, and and again this is something I tell people because so many people get really nervous about making mistakes, and the job of your first novel isn't to show you all the things you do badly, it's to help you find those two or three things that you happen to do amazingly well. And I, I found a couple of things in there. There was so much I did wrong. I mean, tons of stuff I did wrong in that book. Um, you know, it's it's unpublishable. Although my agent maintained it was it would be publishable, publishable just because she liked the title so much. It was called Skeletons in the Cloister. Um, and uh, but but it was you know terrible on every level. But there were a few things in there that that I. I still love to this day. And and that's what you kind of carry forward. And that's what I did. So I carried those things forward. And, you know, I was doing all kinds of other things after that. I had, you know, lots of different careers going on. Um, and I kind of scratched that itch. But but years later, I decided, you know what, there's this thing called the three-day novel writing contest. It happens every year. I'd, I hadn't even decided if I was going to do it. I decided the day, the last day you could register. I didn't even know what book I was going to write on when those three days started. And for three days, I, I wrote, you know, 12 hours a day. I think I wrote as fast as I can type and I didn't have an outline. And I, I wrote 44,000 words of this bizarre swashbuckling story, which um, which years later I would I would go on and, and write a, a much longer second draft of. And that became Trader's Blade, which launched my career as a writer. Now, having read your biography and having read your book one of your many books, might I say, I feel like I know a little bit about you. I feel like I want to learn a little bit more about you. (laughs) So I'm going to ask uh, one of your least favorite questions. (laughs) Because you you make a point of saying on your website, what is your least favorite author question? And you reply, same as all other authors, where do you get your ideas from? Now, I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, Because you're a fantasy writer, you kind of have to build your ideas from scratch, which means you go through a major uh, world-building 
experience more than most authors do. For example, a, a detective author doesn't have to rebuild Los Angeles in the 1930s. That already exists. Or uh, a World War II author doesn't have to rebuild, doesn't have to build uh, any part of World War II. That already exists. You, on the other hand, kind of do. So when somebody says to you, where do you get your ideas from? It actually holds a little bit more weight than it does to 80 to 85% of all the other authors who are working within genres where they don't have to build a world to get to where they are, to get to their first starting point. So from my point of view, that question, where do you get your ideas from, actually holds some validity. Does that make any sense to you? It, it does. You've you've just given a really, really thoughtful preamble to find an excuse to ask the question that you knew I didn't want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I well, well, listen, I would I would in part uh, dispute perhaps the 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 gap um, as you present it between, let's say, a writer of contemporary detective fiction or 1930s Los Angeles detective fiction and a writer of fantasy. And and my reason for that is that, um, the you know, the writer of 1930s Los Angeles detective stories ostensibly yeah. is taking information we know about that period of time and and sort of, you know, inserting it into the book. It's almost almost a, you, we, we, we treat it as if it's a form of a reportage. Right. Where whereas we. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas we would say, OK, well, the fantasy author who writes the story that has knights and sword fights and whatever other kinds of, of things in it. Well, they're making up something new. Now, you know this, of course, right, that that the, the fantasy author who's writing about that is is actually taking a lot of things already from from the existing historical record knights, as an example. Uh, in the case of the Great Coats, which is my first series, which is about these swashbuckling traveling judges, these magistrates, those are in part based on the 12th century uh, English uh, justices itinerant, because, of course, you know, um, when we talk about courts, right, we, we always think of courts as a courtroom now. But of course, courts also means, you know, the king's court. Well, the king's court could only be in one place. And so bringing the king's laws to various parts of the country um, required, you know, judges to go traveling to those places, because otherwise the only law you were getting was whatever law was enforced by a local duke or baron or, or somewhere, someone like that. And so, in in fact, your own, uh, you know, your own um uh, circuit courts, uh, that that name comes from when uh, lawyers and judges would ride a circuit uh, around parts of the United States uh, and then hear cases and judge them. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer um, who traveled on a circuit court route with um, with a judge and another lawyer. And, and there's even rumors that sometimes when when two lawyers weren't required, uh, the the judge would tell Abraham Lincoln, uh, "I'm going to go fishing. You be the judge on this case." Um, <laughs> so so there's things that we sort of inherit from there. And then meanwhile, um, the guy who's writing about the 1930s Los Angeles is is deciding what things are going to be important and what things aren't. And 
and sort of has to fabricate a world within a world. Um, and all writers do this thing that I talk about sometimes, which is all writers are creating from whole cloth what I call like the moral universe. And what I mean by that is we're all deciding uh, what the consequences of actions are. Right. If you're, you know, the yeah. simplest example is if, you know, if you're writing a story in which true love wins out over all, you're defining a moral universe in which those actions that, that one takes towards towards true love are probably going to work out. And those actions one takes that are more cynical or more pra practical will probably not work out. And so we're all creating a, a universe from whole cloth. And it's just the degree of, of kind of, you know, it's almost more the, the names we ascribe to things, to places and such that, that we sort of are either inventing or not inventing. So we're, we're all in the same business, I guess I'd say. Well, it doesn't seem like that was an terribly abhorrent question for you <laughs> that's true but that's because i didn't i didn't actually answer the question where do you get your ideas from so there you go <laughs> he's got a, he's got you there Tom. he really does yeah but i still got to ask the question so i think we both won on that one okay fine <laughs> cam cameron it, your job's to keep score right can you, you you're going to keep a running tally for us oh heck yeah that's that's what i do with every <laughs> author it, it's it's Tom versus the author i keep scores at the end, when we go off the air, I'll let you know who won. You know, it's sort of like I'm sort of like that judge you were talking about. I just judge the whole thing and determine who who came out ahead. There you go. His 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 nickname is actually Judge Judy, but we don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> is there any reason why your uh, your books have received such uh, such acclaim in uh, in Europe? I mean. You've got a quite a large following in uh, in 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 uh, foreign language, much much more than a lot of other books that I've seen. Are you are you yeah. surprised by that? Uh, well, I am. In some ways, I am. In some ways, I'm not. So there's there's a. I mean, this is sort of you know inside baseball. Um, so you don't cut me off. Yeah. Cut me no, off when it turns out to be something that's not interesting for your listeners. But publishing has is is oddly regional in a in a world that is so globalized, and especially a world in which readers are very global in their outlook. In other words, they don't care where the book originates from as long as it's in a language they speak and it, and it's uh, and it's something that they enjoy. But publishers still tend to have a very regional outlook, and, and an example of that is um, American publishers. U.S.-based publishers have a tendency of thinking very much in terms of the United States and, and thinking of and, and that's their market and that's what they sort of prioritize. Um, and so their focus is always there. U.K. publishers, British publishers tend to actually think very much in terms of if we buy this book from this author, can we sell the translation rights? Which do we think we'll get a German deal for it? Do we think we'll get a Dutch uh, deal for it? Um, you know, do we think we'll get a, a Czech Republic deal for it? Um, because that allows them to offset the the advance, the expense, right? And so for the for the author, it's great too, in in, in the sense that you know, uh, I mean, assuming assuming you've got a world rights deal that that you're happy with. In that, um, you know, long before Trader's Blades first, you know, before it first hit the shelves, I'd already earned out my advance. 
because they had uh, I'd gotten a, an advance I was really really happy with but then they sold the German rights and then they sold the Canadian rights and then they sold the French rights to one of the books and by the time they'd done that my advance was already paid out so the moment my books were leaving the shelves I was I was earning royalties um, so that's always pretty sweet in the case of um, uh, you know one of the things that sort of extended out from that was that I, I got quite lucky with the Spellslinger series, of which Way of the Argosi, my latest book, um, is, a, is an offshoot of that series. It's a spinoff from that series uh, in that it just kind of it took off nicely in in various places. There was a lot of enthusiasm for that central idea of of a young mage who who wasn't Harry. You know, he wasn't the sort of Harry Potter. He, he wasn't the chosen one. In fact, he's he's a weaker mage than most of the people he's around. And and he has to, you know, suddenly discovers at the age of 16 when he thought his whole life, he assumed he was going to be special because his parents are such powerful mages and his sister is so powerful. And he's from a society where magic is sort of everything to suddenly discover that he was never going to be that, that he wasn't born special. Um, it turns out to be something that a lot of teenagers and a lot of adults actually feel right like most of us don't have the experience of of turning 10 or 11 and discovering we're secretly way better at everything than we ever thought and our <laughs> parents loved us more than all other parents and we actually secretly have a, a bank account at Gringotts for billions of dollars waiting for us um, most of us it's the other way around and and so that sort of sentiment um, tended to seem to uh, attract some some positive reactions and so yeah i was i was really surprised when uh i'm because that series has been published in a dozen languages and um, yet kind of cool oh yeah i love that i'm i i i love every part of it i uh, because i i love seeing the books when they come out i love getting i get letters from all over that the world that was gonna be my next question do you do you get some interaction with uh readers from like Poland and the Czech Republic and uh, and uh, Germany and Russia I do I do I get a, I get a fair number of uh, Czech readers will eat will write me I mean Google Translate we, we we forget sometimes like how what an odd sort of miracle some of the technology that we use uh, we rely on is um, especially I find something like Google Translate which if you think of Google Translate, you know, it lets anybody translate into any language. It doesn't do it all that well, right? I mean, it, it does it amazingly well given the scale of the task. From our perspective as as users, we usually think this isn't very good. It's you know, it's it makes all these it's awkward and all this stuff. But if you if you put yourself in the position of you're you're a 15 year old in 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 Russia. And you found this book and you've read it and you and you fall in love with it and you desperately want to say something to the author. You just desperately want to get to express what you think or ask them a question. And then you just go to Google and for absolutely free, you type in what you want. It churns something out at the other end that you might not be able to read. Sure. You, you paste that into an email and then and then you get this thing back a few days later from this author that, that again, you can't read, but you stuff it into Google Translate and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I get at least 80% of what he's saying to me. Um, and so I think that's really wonderful. And and so, yeah, I I, I really value that experience. I, I've, I've had some amazingly uh, interesting experiences, um, especially with Spellslinger. And partly this is because of the Argosi as a, as a concept, which is, you know, um, way the Argosi is, is all about them. But in, in the series, they are they're these um this order of sort of traveling almost traveling gambler philosophers 
who, you know, each one of them has to choose their own path. There's no set of easy orders or rules. And they and in, in a world where magic sort of defines everything, these are the people who completely don't care about magic. Everything they do is are, are, are is built on those things that human beings do. So eloquence or or martial arts or all of these things that all of us have access to, right? Even swagger, like just being bold and daring are things that are, are human things. And one of the odd effects of that is I, I often get these letters from people who, who say, you know, I've never found any sort of philosophy that that kind of worked for me. And I, I really love the Argosi philosophy. And, can, you know, can you tell me how it works? How do I become an Argosi? You know, what do I have to do? <laughs> and and I'm always like, um, well, I don't really know because they're they're largely made up. But um, but that was one of the reasons why I ended up writing Way of the Argosi, because I, I wanted to explore that more in part for all of those readers who were who were writing me and saying I I want to I want I want to know more about this I want to think more about it you know I can't teach someone how to be a Jedi um but then the, you know the Jedi are kind of you know again the Jedi are like you have to be born with the force and you have to reject everything that's human like love and stuff like that and the Argosi are the opposite of that um but 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 getting to write that that those books the Argosi books uh, is itself a product of the fact that the Spellsinger series was published in so many languages that, and and because of something like Google Translate, where I can get all those letters from people who are saying, "I love this book. I want to know. I want to know more." So that whole virtuous cycle, like that's what I mean when I say having my books translated into a, you know 12 or 14 other languages is one of the the biggest pleasures for me of being an author. It's because it kind of comes full circle to helping to inform the next book I write. So let's talk for just a little bit about Way of the Argosi, because now that you've kind of given away almost the why that book exists within this series as kind of an exploration of the the cast itself and a, a an exploration of its tenants. Uh, let's talk for a little bit about the exploration of <clears throat> the characters within it. Sure. Um, you, go ahead. Oh, no, no I was, I, sorry. I thought you were going to tee me up nicely there. Well, <laughs> actually what I'm, what I was going to do is just kind of talk about the philosophy behind the way you've set this book up as a series of uh, lessons, if you will. Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, my, my original pitch for Way of the Argosi, um, which is, by the way, a terrible pitch. No one should ever pitch this way, was was uh, kind of was a fantasy version of The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Um, Paolo Coelho, of course, you know, I mean, The Alchemist is itself a fantasy, but mm -hmm. it, it's it's very much actually a, a way of him expressing a lot of his his philosophy through the vehicle of the story. Now, nobody really needs to know my philosophy or, or wants to read it. Um, and so the book, of course, you know, went in its own direction. Uh, and, and, you know, at its core, it's a story of a, of, of a young of a young woman. You know, she's a girl at the start of the story. Um, she's a refugee who's part of a people who basically lost a war 300 years before. 
And even though they lost the war and there's not that many of them left, the people that they lost it to, the nation that they lost it to, sort of has this constant anxiety that, you know, these people are going to try and get revenge on them. You know, they're going to try and do something to them and, and that they're going to be dangerous. And so they still, even 300 years later, sort of keep hunting uh, these people out of out of that kind of weird fear and, and bigotry and resentment. And so she begins the story having been basically experimented on uh, through magic in, in such a way as that she, you know, is is denied um, being able to be around other people. She's, you know, she's constantly on the run. Her life is pretty miserable and she tries to figure out how to sort of survive that, you know, how to how to fight back. And so in each part of the book, she's, you know, she's trying some other way, you know, do I try to live like a knight, you know, knights are brave and they're bold and they learn to fight and they're courageous. And then that, you know, completely breaks apart and fails for her. And then, so she, you know, tries to live as a thief and go, you know what, I'll just be sneaky. I'll figure out how to get what I need. And, and that breaks apart for her too. And that's, and that's when she eventually she meets a, an Argosi and the Argosi sort of have all these precepts about, how they deal with the world, you know, the, the, the four, what they're called the four ways. And the four ways are, are, are water, wind, uh, thunder, and stone. And they're, and they're just, they're very basic things. They're, they're not things, they're things that you can easily derive from, from philosophies like Taoism or, or other things. And by the way, I should say, I'm not an expert on anybody's philosophy. So nothing I write is an accurate reflection of some real world philosophy. But the idea of, of the way of water is, you know, look, when you deal with somebody, when you encounter someone, you should you should try to take nothing away from them. You should try and not have anything taken away from you. You should try and have this kind of peaceful thing. And and if you can and, and if you can't, well, the way of wind is sort of listen to where the wind's going and try to follow follow the signs that are all around you to, to sort of solve things. And, and the way of thunder, the Argosi are generally very peaceful, but their philosophy around violence, as an, as an example, or, is if you're going to be violent, uh, if, if, th if that becomes a necessity, it has to be incredibly fast and incredibly brutal, because otherwise, you know, you're, you're just playing it halfway. So you, should, you shouldn't give yourself the freedom to, to beat somebody up to show them that you're angry with them or, or to, to scare them off. Uh, you should do everything you can to avoid that and assume that if you are going to if you are going to use violence against someone that you're going to have to take responsibility for for the consequences of, of that violence. And so it's it's an it's it's all of those things that go into it. Uh, and that's and that's sort of some of what she learns, which sort of affords her a different opportunity to kind of deal with um, with her life in the world that isn't built around either just survival or revenge. Um, it's an interesting book built around an interesting philosophy, built around an interesting universe uh, that you have spent a number of years working within that's right so where do you go from here well the there's a the, the next book in the argosi series is called follow the argosi and that actually comes out in october um so there's so there's that book coming out then um and i'll probably be writing another um spell slinger book uh, sometime in the fall as well for, for release early next year. Um, there's still, you know, that, that, that there's always that question, you know, when you're uh, a writer of, of how, you know, how many more books do you have with a given set of, uh, in a place or a set of characters? And um, 
I think I was I, I met David Gerald once, who, of course, is, you know, fantastic grandmaster of science fiction kind of guy. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and he was really kind to me, actually. It was our first time meeting. And uh, it was one of those things where we were we were we were at Worldcon and we were at um, different signing tables. And, and I was just horrified because I'm like, oh, man, this guy's going to have like, the you know, this line around the block and there's going to be nobody wanting me to sign anything. I was really, you know, one of the nice things about something like Worldcon is there's always somebody who actually wants you to sign their book. So I had I had a few people there, which was great. But I was way too kind of um, awkward to to sort of go up to him. And but he actually he came up to me, which I guess is his practice, you know, being a. A, a fundamentally good human being he said you know i'm david i just wanted to come over and introduce myself and and so we got chatting a little bit and and i at the time i'd been writing the final i'd been about to write the final great coats book and uh which is called tyrant's throne and and i said to him like man how do you end a series like that's just a terrifying prospect to me um i don't know what it should do i don't know what it means and and he said he said you you know you're done when you've said everything that you can say with those characters and it it sounds very simple but it's actually a, an incredibly uh incisive way of of looking at it that that with a set of characters or even with a world what they are at the end of the day is a way for you a, a channel for you to say something that, that you that you believe in some fashion, even when you don't really know what you believe and, and, until you've written it. Um, and when you hit the point where the only things your characters can do is in one sense or another, repeat things they've already said or done before, that's that's when you're finished. So with Spellslinger and with the Argosi, I haven't quite hit that point yet, especially since with Spellslinger, Kellen's, you know, now an adult. So I'm I'm kind of interesting. I haven't seen a lot of this before of a series that starts out young adult and then becomes a sort of full on adult fantasy series. Um, and so I kind of I'm interested in exploring that. So there's still lots of room to play in. I would say that I I would agree with you because I, I can only think of one other author and we've had her on the show that's done something comparable where they started out with one character at a very young age and then progressed through the series until you're actually dealing with that young character from book one. So it's adult children now in the mm -hmm. later books. So yeah, it is something that when I see it, it is absolutely fascinating to watch the growth of the characters moving up and then producing new generations that are now the main characters of the series. So yeah, it is, it is a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I'd sort of, I think there's something fun about it just conceptually that, um, you know, a lot of the people who started reading Spellslinger when it first came out, like th that's one of the things that's really interesting about writing young adult fiction that I that should have been obvious to me, but I wasn't really prepared for was that um, often people will be going through the transition between childhood and adulthood over the course of reading your books. Um, and so you can meet someone, you know, to me, I think of Spellslinger and I'm going, well, the first book came out in 2017. So that was, you know, that was pretty recent, but I'll meet someone and they'll be like, yeah, when I was a kid, I really loved your books. <laughs> and, and I'll realize they're right. Right. They, you know, they're 18 years old now. They're, they're an adult. They're dealing with all kinds of adult stuff. And so for them, it's a part of their, it's a part of their past. Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm interested in the challenge of then saying, well, what do you, what do you write that speaks to that person now that they've made that transition into adulthood. 
you know, there's 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 a whole lot more we could get into right now. Uh, the fact that you have the philosophy of an existential humanist stoic, the fact that you perform live music with a Beatles tribute band, the fact that you love to travel in a time when nobody can travel anymore, the fact that you love going to conventions when there are no conventions right now and all the things that you're missing because of it, the fact that you've got one, two, or three books on the hook right now, or the fact that it's just a lot of fun talking to you, but we're going to have you back. I mean, if you want to. Episode 500, baby. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I'm, I, you asked, this is the, okay, Cameron, are you ready? It's time to give him his presence. I, okay. All right. All right. You go, but you please, you first. You okay. Know. Yeah. Uh, Dome, it's me. I'm, I'm yeah. your present. You get episode 500. It's a seven hour <laughs> interview with me. Uh, so congratulations and um, you're welcome. You're on for the 500th show. Is this what I'm hearing? <laughs> oh, yes. And, and, and even better dome. Remember, so I said, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's going to be champagne and there's going to be, you know, gold. Champagne pills. and so, fruity pebbles. Well, that too. But he and the band will be playing gold plated instruments. And they will be playing live a rendition of Octopus's Garden in the Shade. Oh, man. Just for you. My, my favorite Beatles song, Octopus's Garden. That's your favorite Beatles song? One of my all-time favorites, yes. Wow. You, you, you dig yourself some Ringo there. I dig myself an awful lot of Ringo. Yes, absolutely. Ring, Ringo had some pretty amazing songs, actually. So He did. Yeah. Him and George. Yeah, George George is stellar. Yeah. I mean, who cares about that John Lennon, Paul McCartney? Oh, come on. He, <laughs> Lennon was much better when he was on the West Coast playing with Harry Nilsson. That's all I got to say. <laughs> wow. That's a deep cut, man. Uh, and the, the best cuts are the deepest. That's right. <laughs> Sebastian, man, it was a pleasure having you on. Want to have you back want to hear what you've got to say want to want to read what you've got to what you've got to write want to do the things you've got to do please come back often i'd I'd be absolutely delighted thanks so much for having me both of you it was a real pleasure yes definitely sci-fi saturday night is the official podcast of granite con plastic city comic con and the upper valley comic expo We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, the superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp and a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, do we all refute entropy? 
Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. I don't you hate people like me? I know I do.